Good morning, everyone. It's Harry, back from a two-week holiday from considering. Two whole weeks of considering absolutely nothing. That was my Christmas gift to myself, not considering. Being inconsiderate. Um, I hope you got some things you wanted or nothing at all, right? Something I want or leave it at Walmart. I No room for another tie pin. I already have three to go with the zero ties I own. And I think I'll re-gift those to George when he's older, you know, make up some fantastic story with each one. Got this one tonight. I punched out Mike Tyson. Uh, this this one I got when I circumnavigated the globe on a marble. Say no to shit you don't need. Figuring out how to re-gift just wears your ass down. So, good holiday times. It was a good time. George is almost four. Yeah, he got some cool stuff, and I got a bunch of cool pics of George getting cool stuff. Mom got a lumpectomy for Christmas. She's a Jehovah's Witness, so Christmas isn't real for her. The lumpectomy was real. Breast cancer. Um, as far as gifts go, I don't think cancer's a good one. And Dad got some walking lessons at a physical therapy rehab clinic. And I got a customer rewards card at the local COVID-19 testing site for my loyalty to their program. But we're all back in our respective homes, limping gleefully into 2021. So, for the second time since I started this podcast, the second time in just 16 episodes, some nitwit has lodged a complaint as to the show's greeting. Good morning, everyone. And this guy seemed put out, just way too put out for a minor beef. And I know we're ultra sensitive in America, but damn, good morning, everyone. So, I've cooked up a greeting just for him. Something a little like this. Fuck you, Nick, you peevish douchebag. Welcome to my show. His real issue was really not with a greeting. It was that it was never morning when he listened. So, if you're in the same predicament, a little put out, because it's not morning for you, I'll get you on track. Imagine you're listening in a faraway land at the break of dawn. You don't know the language... And your currency conversion liaison is the local Donnie boy or someone else you can trust with your money like Bernie Madoff. Or if you don't want to work that hard, just treat good morning everyone for the throwaway line that it is. So this is the first podcast of 2021. I wanted to start the new year with an optimistic podcast. Some, you know, feel good stuff like squishy boobs or, you know, any chapter from a self-help book. And just scribble away. But just like every other episode, inspiration came in a flash. Something briefly heard. And, and you know you know the inspiration is meaningful when the butterfly effect kicks in. You get an idea and it just starts growing concentrically from that original seed of inspiration. And then, then it's off to the writing desk for real. So I'm cleaning up after a busy service at work. I got my earbuds in. Not earbuds. Can't afford those things. And Peter Gabriel on a random playlist, one of his lesser-known songs, We Do What We're Told, subtitled Milgram's 37. And it's a short song, short but certainly not sweet. The implications of the song are dystopian, but the Milgram's 37 subtitle is actually Peter Gabriel's tribute to the 37% of people who refuse to throw down some high-voltage sadism in Stanley Milgram's obedience experiments in 1961. 
And and by the way, this is a recurring theme for Peter Gabriel. He's always paid tribute to those who refuse to obey unethical or immoral orders or laws and, and then paying the price for their disobedience. Uh, but enough Gabriel. He gets enough press. On to Milgram, Stanley Milgram. And I have to lay down some historical context because Milgram's dis, uh, his obedience experiments are far more interesting when you know the context of his life and of the world in 1961, the year he conducted his experiments. Uh, Milgram was born in 1933 in the Bronx, Jewish parents, uh, inquisitive and, and just stunningly intelligent kid, thoroughly embraced his Jewishness. And when Milgram was a young teen, his parents took in relatives who had recently been liberated from the concentration camps. And he knew what those tattoos meant. He imagined their suffering, and he had immense compassion for these people, these relatives. But the intellectual wheels were turning also. How lucky I am to be born here instead of there. Random luck. But the essential question for him was, and like it is for us, how could one group of humans do this to another group of humans? And it wasn't just Hitler. Hitler couldn't have done this by himself. He had to have help on a massive scale. Had he gone down to the Jewish neighborhoods and just started yammering away, they would have kicked the crap out of him. You know, they would have yanked that pocket comb mustache off his lip. He had to have help. No man is a, a one-man final solution island. Uh, but it wasn't the psychology of a man that interested Milgram. It was the sociology of a nation. Hitler was incidental. Uh, how were well-educated, humane Germans persuaded to obey, to be obedient to Hitler's crazy dream? So Milgram's off to college. Queens College, New York, excels in all academic fields, takes his B.A. in sociology. No, political science. <laughs> I don't know why. He applies to the doctoral program in social psychology at Harvard. And originally he's denied uh, for lack of undergraduate study in psychology, but he was accepted shortly thereafter on the strength of his academic resume. Straight A's at James Monroe High School in the Bronx, where he was uh, coincidentally a classmate of Philip Zimbardo, who was the architect and warden of the insane Stanford prison experiment in 1971. Um, Zimbardo's prison experiment is often linked to Milgram's obedience experiments, and I've read books on both. The connection is tenuous at best. Uh, Milgram's experiments were enlightening and grew our knowledge of human nature. Uh, the Stanford prison experiment was a sadomasochistic fiasco. And if you want to know more about that one, check out Dan Cummings' podcast, Time Suck, uh, episode 81. Cummings is a first-rate first rate comedian, first-rate podcaster, and just, just an intensely curious and insightful student of human nature. So Milgram's experiments, actually, uh, they were just many trials of the same experiment. But anyway, the methodology was quite simple. He, uh, he would later be criticized for this, by the way. Simple setup. Milgram advertised for people from various walks of life to participate in an experiment at Yale University in July of 1961. He then hired actors to participate along with the volunteers only the actors were, were privy uh, to the experiment, to the ruse about to be performed. And the volunteers were assigned the roles of teachers. The actors were assigned the roles of learners. 
And the teachers and learners played a word association game. They sat on opposite sides of a glass, wore headphones to communicate, and could see one another. And the learner had an electrode attached to his finger, and the teacher had a little button, you know, to shoot juice through the, through the wires to that electrode. And when the learner gave a wrong answer, the teacher was instructed to hit that button. And an electric shock, <laughs> that button right there, hit it. You can, you can loosen your sphincters. There was no electric shock. The actors feigned being zapped by the phony electrodes affixed to their bodies. But the teachers didn't know that. They thought they had administered some real juice. And as the wrong answers stockpiled, the dosage was increased. And even when the teachers were told the amperage neared the fatal level, 65% still hit the button. Now, that'll learn you. And I'm sorry, Peter Gabriel, your Milgram's 37 should have been Milgram's 35 because only 35% of the teachers refused to obey. And it took the near fatal level just to get to that 35. So, and I know those of you with brains in the upright position are casting doubt. Shock someone over such a simple game? Get out of here. Going along with this madness for such a seemingly trivial experiment. But Milgram had thought it out a little more thoroughly and had, as his model, the Third Reich. Hitler didn't just ascend to the podium and say, you know, hey guys, we don't like these Jews, let's murder them. Hitler convinced his countrymen that the extermination of the Jews served a greater good, the purification of the Aryan blood, a higher goal. You know, we're not doing this just to be dickholes. And before his experiments, Milgram had told his teachers something similar. This experiment is a small part of a much larger experiment that should yield some very great things for mankind. We have a higher goal, a noble purpose. We're not you know, just going to move the chains unless we zap some of these dumbasses. And that's not a direct quote from Milgram, by the way, but it is essentially part of his pitch. And But Milgram also made sure to select volunteers from all walks of life. He headed off all criticism that the results may only apply to a specific group rather than humanity in general. Uh, this guy didn't get to Harvard half-assing it. So Milgram was disappointed with the results of his experiments. He'd hoped the percentage of teachers willing to administer the near-fatal dose would be much lower than 65% who were willing. And, you know, when I think about it, Milgram, Milgram really should have expected a high, this high percentage because at the time, 1961, the Nuremberg trials were fresh in the world's consciousness and the Nazi defendants there showed no remorse and employed the now infamous Nuremberg defense. We were following the orders of our superiors. We were doing what we were ordered to do. We do what we're told. And none of the defendants, the defendants objected to pushing that button, and that was at the fatal level. A year before Milgram's experiment, 1960, Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the final solution, had been captured in Argentina by the Mossad. And the, the Mossad is not, you know, a collection of mall cops. These guys, they're the super Jews. They're freight trains with prayer locks. Uh, I doubt if they protected his head when putting him in the car. You're coming with us. And they smuggled Eichmann on a plane, sedated and dressed as a woman, for some final solution in Israel. Uh, unlike the other Nazis, he was not tried in Germany, but in Israel. 
and talk about the need for a venue change. It's like being tried for a hate crime in Harlem and the judge is Malcolm X. Uh, Can we move the trial to KKK, Texas, Your Honor? No, sir. Here you committed your crime and here you shall be tried. Now sit your cracker ass down. And a year after Milgram's experiment, Eichmann was hanged. And that was in 1962. And just a quick bit about the the trial of Eichmann. It was televised to the world. Israel made sure that this was highly televised. None of the facts of the case, you know, were spectacular to me because I knew the story before I watched it. But what was amazing to me was the due process. I mean, here was this architect of the Holocaust, the final solution, and the Jews gave him remarkable due process. But, you know, back to Milgram, the original peer reviews of his conclusions uh, to the experiment were almost universally negative. They didn't confirm other psychologists' theories on the issues of obedience. Um, some attacked his methodology for being overly simple or too narrow. And, but the reviewers, they, they maintained professional integrity. They didn't write Milgram off the quack. They weren't at his throat. You know, give him an Eichmann, hang him. They, uh, but they did levy a harsh punishment for their circles. Uh, they denied him membership in the American Psychological Association for one year. Uh, you may imagine having to go a year without those joys at the American Psychological Association. Can't even fathom the horrors, can you? Uh, but then Milgram was denied tenure at Harvard, where he was a lecturer. You know, you're a hot potato, son. We just want to smoke our pipes, sweat in our tweed jackets, and drink our 12-year-old scotch. Your rigorous curiosity spells nothing but trouble here. Go back to where you came from. So Milgram did what he was told. He went back to where he came from. He returned to New York, where he taught at the City University of New York Graduate Center until his death in 1984 at the age of 51. The negative uh, reviews of his conclusions started to flip fairly quickly after the publication. And then an incident in 1968 during the Vietnam War flipped the remaining holdouts. In 1968, a battalion of American soldiers were ordered to gun down the innocent, unarmed citizens of My Lai and My Kay. And an estimated 425 innocent Vietnamese citizens were murdered. And since we're going to get away with murdering these people, might as well get some rape in while we're at it. Girls as young as 12. The details of the My Lai Massacre came to light just a year later. I mean, it was almost immediate. And public outrage in America and around the world forced the military to hold military tribunals. 22 American soldiers were tried. One was convicted. One. Convicted of murdering 22 people. And he did three years of house arrest. And at the hearings, the soldiers employed the Nuremberg defense. We were following the orders of our superiors. They did what they were told. Uh, And the villagers were harboring North Vietnamese soldiers anyway. So they were told that. And they committed this atrocity for the greater good. Though I don't see where the raping fits in. But they did it just as the Germans had just as the teachers in Milgram's experiment had. So just seven years after publishing his conclusions, the psychological community acknowledged Milgram's conclusions as correct. 
If you want to know more about Milgram's conclusions, check out his book, Obedience to Authority. It's a great read. I'm sure you're going to find some inaccuracy in my narrative and confirm your opinion of me as a dumbass. So now we know the theory, but how does it work and how pervasive is this behavior? And but before we get on that, I mean, not all obedience is bad. It's often useful and, and morally just. I mean, we need our our young children to obey because they're unaware of some things that are dangerous. You know, uh, Sylvia Jean, get your head out of that oven. Don't spray paint the television. Don't shit in your brother's pants. All these behaviors that need to be stopped and you need, you need the kids to obey. So if you've done a good job of parenting, your kids won't start questioning your authority until they're, you know, an appropriate age, like 50. And we need our dogs to obey because to them, wherever they're standing is a toilet. And we can't have an unsanitary household with dog shit everywhere. So appropriate obedience serves us pretty well. We obey tax laws, traffic laws. We wear our seat belts. We don't hit, you know, anyone bigger than us. Don't steal. Don't kidnap. Don't home invade. It, just good obedience serves us well. Keeps order in society. Where it starts to get a little blind, where this obedience starts to jump the rails, is with that idiotic Pledge of Allegiance, which is still mandatory in large swaths of the redneck belt. This ritual of obedience, this pledge to a damn flag, is still viewed as a patriotic act by over 50% of Americans. Six-year-old kids, often in school uniforms, standing next to their desks, shoulders back, chests out, hands over their hearts, staring lovingly at the flag, and spewing that utter flapdoodle. Six-year-olds brainwashed into never questioning what the symbol stands for. Just like the Hitler youth pledging allegiance to the Reich, to the swastika, and pledging allegiance to the final solution. And if you're going to hardwire your subjects for obedience, start young. You may think, as I often have, not me, I'm not going to do that. I won't blindly obey. I'll object to things that are clearly wrong. I wouldn't have gone along with the Holocaust had I been a German in the 30s, and I wouldn't have gone along with slavery as a farmer in the antebellum South. I would have swum against the current. I would have risked being hated, being ostracized, exiled, jailed. I'm a good moral person of courage. I would have objected. Well, probably not. You wouldn't have. At best, you would have remained silent. Voiceless acquiescence. All of us have done it in the face of something we knew was wrong. And leaders since the dawn of human history have known how to manipulate our obedience. It didn't start with Sun Tzu or Machiavelli. They merely observed it as a valuable skill for leadership. Political leaders, cult leaders, uh, leaders in sports, leaders in the workplace. Anywhere there's leadership to be exercised, it can happen. Someone waiting to exploit the hard wires of our obedience. We saw it in Nazi Germany. We saw it in the antebellum South, religious cults of all stripes. And ask any ex-Scientologist how difficult it is to object. Even at the micro level, I remember a true crime documentary I watched when I was researching my true crime, epi- uh, uh, true crime episode. Um, a mere shift manager, a shift manager of a shipping plant exploited a new female employee using all these tools. Um, she was afraid to spurn his sexual advances. This is the best place to work, he told her. We're number one in our industry. Our competitors are commies. Here you can advance if you're a team player. Wink, wink. So 
Okay, that was anecdotal, seemingly insignificant, until you consider the sheer frequency of it, how often it happens. These small-time dickholes use the same tactics as cult leaders and dictators. They're just not as ambitious. But the ambitious one comes along, convinces you of his benevolence. He cares for you. Your principles are his principles. You're one of us. But I'm the quarterback, so get out there and block for me. Because there are others out to destroy us, destroy our way of life. They're socialists. They're liberals. They're pedophiles, vermin, scum, Dallas Cowboy fans. Dehumanization. So the obedient act out the leader's wishes. Um, I don't know how ethical this is, but it's for the greater good. And for that streak of cowardice that runs parallel to our, our obedience, they'll never know it was me. I'll use Facebook, Twitter. I'll get in the middle of the crowd before I hurl this rock. You have anonymity. But you start to have some doubts. Still, you want the leader and other followers to like you. You want to be polite. And besides, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable and sometimes even dangerous to just walk away. So you hang on. You suppress your doubts. You regain total belief in the benevolence of your leader, despite mountains of evidence questioning that benevolence. And psychologists call it belief perseverance. You stick with your original impression, regardless of how wrong it's been shown to be. All of this is for the greater good. If it goes up in flames, I'll just sidle back to my anonymity. I mean, really, who remembers the name of an everyday German who stood placidly by, believing in the greater goals of the Reich? Um, Even the teachers in Milgram's experiments had anonymity. Um, The learners, the ones being juiced, fake as it was, they didn't know any of the teachers, and the teachers didn't know any of the learners. And anonymity gives cover. It produces paper backbones. It tricks the obedient into thinking that they're pushing this rock to Eden when they're only pushing it to some leader's dubious hellhole. So we fall in line. We do what we're told when it's clearly not good for us. Uh, Being hardwired for obedience opens us up to every cult leader, con man with a little charisma and a little ambition. And we have busy lives in a complicated world. We're overwhelmed. We don't know what to think, what to believe. Uh, One news show tells us this. Another news show tells us that. And the third thing on the Internet contradicts both of them. We're overwhelmed. We throw up our hands. We cede our thinking to somebody claiming to have the answers, claiming to be on our side, claiming to offer us a role in the greater good. Hey, that's what he said. And he's benevolent. Why would he lie? And that was going to be the end of this podcast. You know, I was going to do my closeout stuff. But as it happens, coincidentally, I'm writing this on January 6th, 2021, a date that will appear in our history books till the end of history. The day the Trumpies stormed the Bastille, they did what they were told. Our benevolent leader is one of us. He's preserving our way of life, working for the greater good. He's protecting us from the vermin and the scum, the swamp creatures, socialist liberals, pedophiles. Stop the steel, storm the Bastille. And when it goes up in flames, you're on your own. For a con man, loyalty is a one-way street. That's all I'm going to say about <laughs> that capital fiasco. And uh, But thanks for listening to this sometime rambling episode 16 of A Few Things Considered. I hope your holiday break was as joyful as mine. Uh, I'm still working on the website, and I'll let you know when it's active. I can't wait to you know, start getting some interactions with everyone. 
next week, I'm considering the myth of American exceptionalism, and I hope I do a good job for you. A little more focused on this one. It's Harry, and I am out. <laughs>